Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Starting in First Peter, starting the series actually tonight on First uh, and Second Peter, and uh, uh, we we will be here as long as it takes us to get through these chapters and these verses. And, uh, there are sometimes I can set a period of time for that. There's other times I can't. This is one of those times that I just will not even attempt to do that. Amen. So tonight's just basically going to kind of be of a introduction into the book of First Peter and just kind of overarching concept that we'll be looking at for the next several several weeks again so good to see everybody in the house of the lord good to see roxanne and bob i don't know if you got my voicemail i threw on your on your phone but uh if not you have to listen to it man i prayed a prayer and everything it was just (laughs) but uh and it's good to see it's good to see uh, brother gregory howard here tonight as well amen had a good conversation with him last week too man felt the power of God amen in that conversation and just so good to see everybody here everybody well shh don't tell anybody but it's good to see everybody well amen first Peter chapter uh, one I'm going to read the first two verses and again this is just kind of an introduction overarching it will not be I don't foresee that it'll be this slow going okay for the whole thing because you're going to say how in the world did he get all that out two verses well I've already read a lot of the chapters over and over so kind of give us a, a base point here this evening. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1 and verse number 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ grace unto you and peace be multiplied i don't have again any special title introduction is probably as good as it gets amen for at least tonight gonna pray that the lord would help us do you know that every every passage in the word of the lord from genesis to revelations in some way can help and some somehow have application to our lives amen and so we want the word of the lord to speak to us Amen for the book of First and Second Peter here in the next few weeks. Father, we come to you today. God, we need you, Lord Jesus, in the next few moments of this service as we, Lord, delve into this book of the Bible. I pray, oh Lord, that you would open our minds and understanding. God, I am, Lord, overjoyed to see the many faces the Lord are here tonight. I pray, oh Lord, help us, Lord, to derive strength and encouragement from the word of the Lord. God, if the worlds were framed by the word of God, then we know that your word has creative power. God, in the very word of God, can change and alter destinies and circumstances, Lord. And if we'll allow it to work in our lives, God, it can absolutely affect change. God, and it's with that, Lord, we approach, Lord Jesus, your word tonight. God, with hope and anticipation, in the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. Someone say amen. Shake your neighbor if it's appropriate. You might not have seen them in a while. You might want to, you know, shake their hand and reintroduce yourself. Man, so this this overarching idea of First Peter, the Apostle Peter, as we will probably many times call him, is going to deal with a concept, a concept and a reality that, of course, was not foreign uh, to him. It wasn't foreign to him, but it was known to him. In other words, the Apostle Peter is not talking about something he didn't know. This he knew for a fact. He knew that whenever a person had the new birth experience, what John 3 talks about, being born of the water and the Spirit, he knew that whenever a person had that experience, that they entered into this partnership with God. And as they entered into that partnership with God, they at the same moment became an enemy of the world that they had once been a part of. And so whenever that choice and that decision or that experience happens in your life, it will set you in good standing with God. But in the same moment it does that, 
it may set you out of step with some of the things you used to be in step with. And so Peter is going to concentrate on that throughout this book. As a matter of fact, he is going to concentrate on the idea that whenever he came to the Lord, or men, Gentiles, Jews, come to the Lord, that there is a certain amount of holiness that they are called to, or another word for holiness would be a separation that they are called to. Uh, we will come across those verses of Scripture in Peter where the Bible talks about the Lord would say, Be holy, for I am holy. And so they're coming to the Lord. There's a separation that they are called to. And what that happens, we talk about holiness, we talk about separation. We're talking about there's something that separates us unto God that in the same moment separates us from, again, the life that we used to know. Certain ways and mannerisms of the life that we used to live. And as a result, as a result of that, as a result of this holiness, as a result of this separation, as a result of this new birth experience, the culture that the Apostle Peter and those that had known formerly where, where they lived now see them as a threat. They see them as a threat. They see them almost even as being very hostile to their surroundings and their environment. And the reason why is because now they're different. The reason why is now they didn't necessarily go along or subscribe to the status quo of their society. They walk to the beat of a different drum, so to speak. You know, anybody that steps outside of the quote-unquote norm uh, that, that seems to be different, that it seems to challenge than everybody else in the way that they're walking their life. And so that's what, that's what the, the Apostle Peter is going to address in these chapters it is these people though these people that peter is addressing uh to 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 come and that he's speaking to that he says in the very last chapter of first peter he's addressing them to stand firm in the true grace of god that although they're going to be assailed now because they've made a change there's a different there's been a change in their life they're going to be assailed by their old lifestyle his constant plea to them is stand stand firm in the true grace of God that you've experienced and that you have known and particularly because this is going to be a big theme all throughout our study particularly whenever you approach and are met with sufferings because as we all know, and we've touched on this, it seems like in, in some of the past weeks, you know, there are sufferings that's self-induced that we bring on ourselves, right? And then there are sufferings by, you know, uh, uh, that, that come about just as a part of life. And then there are those sufferings that come a part of our lives because you are living for the Lord. And so Peter is going to take a grand concentration upon those sufferings that come in our life as a part of us being true to the Lord. Because there are sufferings, he'll talk about later how there are trials of our faith. That there are some sufferings that come just because that we have given our allegiance unto the Lord. And it's in those that the apostle Peter is telling the people that you need to stay true to the grace of God. Don't allow the sufferings that come upon you as a result of this new change in your life make you want to return then to your old life. Stay true to the grace of God. So suffering is going to be a thing throughout this epistle. As a matter of fact, it's mentioned no less than 16 times uh, in the epistle. But, but what Peter wants the people to know is that he didn't want them to be sideswiped by this very fact that suffering, listen to this, suffering is just as much of their experience, their newfound experience, as joy is. Now that's hard, I know, sometimes to weigh in the balance. But suffering, your experience with God, suffering can be just as much as that experience as joy is your experience. He wants them to understand that the same thing that gives them joy may also provoke suffering from the world. The new joy that you found may cause suffering from the world you used to be a part of. He wants them, and us for that matter, to know that if we walk away, because some people, when the suffering starts to come because of their faith, they're like, okay, forget this. He wants them to know that if they walk away because, you know, the suffering, the trial of their faith has come, they'd rather not suffer, so I'm just going to walk away from that. He wants them to know if they are going to walk away, then the moment they walk away to get away from the suffering they're now experiencing, they are leaving joy in the same moment. So if you're going to get out from under the, the, the trial of your faith and that suffering, then you're getting out from under then the umbrella of the joy that comes with your new birth experience as well. 
So he says, if you're willing to throw the suffering away, you're going to have to be willing to throw the joy away. Because they're two twins that come in the same bed, so to speak. You're going to have suffering and you are going to have joy as well. Not only that, though, Peter is going to tell us and he's going to reiterate to us, not, mention, will you, not, not to mention will you throw away the joy, but you are also going to throw away the glory that he'll talk to us about that follows the suffering. That's something that Peter constantly tells us. He says you have suffering, but always on the backside of suffering is glory. And he uses the example of the Lord Jesus Christ of that over and over again. On the backside of his suffering was glory. And so don't think that yours is going to be any different. On the backside of your suffering, when you suffer for the faith, when you suffer for truth, he says it's going to come glory. But if you want to do away with the suffering, you're going to do away with the joy and you're going to do away with the glory that would have followed the suffering that you're currently going through. Amen. And so we read this, you know, Peter isn't alone by himself here as an apostle. We have a, a great panel of apostles in the New Testament Scripture. We have the Apostle Paul who wrote, you know, a majority of the New Testament Scripture. And even Paul, even Paul had said in Acts 14.22 that we, through, that we through much tribulation, we could also insert the word testing there because that's what tribulation means, that we through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Through much tribulation, testing, and suffering, we enter into the kingdom. And so what that tells me is this. The literal path to the kingdom of God is littered with suffering. Here's the billboard for us. Expect suffering, okay? (laughs) Expect suffering. But then the next billboard says, when it's done, expect glory. And the next billboard says, even through your suffering and your glory, joy is there all along. See, that puzzles modern-day society that a person can suffer and be joyous at the same time. But Peter's relaying to us as children of God, you are going to suffer for the faith, but you can still maintain your joy while you're suffering. You've heard me say it before. That's what confuses people. How can that person be going through so much in their life and it seems like they still have a smile on their face? That's not because in their own human way they have the ability to do that. That's because they've had an experience with God. His spirit lives inside of them and although everything is at the bottom, it seems, and they're suffering for the name, that they still have a joy in their heart that the world didn't give, the Bible says, and the world cannot take away. Amen. And so we all, it's not that suffering, you know, these Christians are going to suffer and then it's not for these. No, 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 no. The fact is, it's true for all Christians to some degree, we will suffer for the faith. Now, you might not be in stocks and bonds as some missionary in a third world country may be tonight, but we all have certain degrees of suffering that we do. Peter In reality, those who he was speaking to, these different places of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, he may or may not know, I don't know for sure according to the word of the Lord from what I can read, but he may or may not know the exact situations that those particular Christians were facing, how they were suffering. But what he could speak from was this. He knew how he had suffered. He knew how he personally suffered. And so he could speak to them on that basis. And not only that, whenever we talk about suffering in the book of 1 Peter, a lot of the persecutions or the suffering that they went through for the faith had to do, and we'll see this throughout the chapters, had to do with verbal slander. They suffered as a result of that. Malicious talk. Anybody ever suffered some of that? False accusations. You ever suffered any of that? Concerning for the faith? Not only could Peter then speak from his point of view of what he had suffered, but he could also speak from his point of view about Christ's suffering because the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 1, that Peter was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. And so when the Bible says that truly that a, a, a servant is no greater than his Lord, if that stands true, which it does, it's the Bible, then that meant if Christ suffered, you know what, Peter and disciples and those that are followers of Christ? You're going to suffer too. If he said, take up your cross, every cross leads to a crucifixion. (laughs) It leads to a crucifixion and all that is involved. The Bible says in John 15 and verse 20, remember the word that I said unto you. This is Jesus speaking. The servant is not greater than his Lord. 
If they have persecuted me, he says, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. And so what Peter's objective through the next chapters is this. His objective is to convince Christians in these areas that they, and this is important because this this is applicable for us today, that they can conduct themselves proper even during their troubling times without compromising the source of their joy and their contentment. You can have stellar conduct through your suffering and not compromise your joy or your contentment of your new birth experience. So the Bible, this, this first, first Peter here, it's a letter, it's an epistle. It contains some of the typical information that it does there, right there in the very first couple of verses, as any letter would. It's going to tell us about who the author is, who he was writing to, some form of greeting that he had. He tells us very plainly, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, too. He's telling us who he's writing to. So, of course, the author here is Peter. Although you could read a lot of different stuff, there's a lot of liberal critics out there today that will attempt to tell you that Peter did not write First Peter. All right? Well, that's a bunch of hogwash. Okay? For number one, there are a lot of modern-day critics that are in this generation looking back centuries. And uh, I'll tell you just, just for sake of information that there were people writers in the second and third century right after the book of first peter has been written that quote first peter and attest to the fact peter was the author now who's going to know better if he was the author someone that's just one century removed from him or us it's been centuries upon centuries removed from him but nevertheless and and there's certain places in scripture it may seem like peter may have dictated some of his epistle he may have told somebody this is what i want written and they wrote it but still yet whenever it comes down to it that's still peter's epistle Amen, even if he did it by dictation. And so we know a lot about Peter. You all probably know a lot about Peter because he has a, he has a great presence throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. He's a pretty, he's a pretty prominent uh, disciple for the Lord. As a matter of fact, there's probably no other individual in the Gospels we have any more information on except Christ Jesus than, than, than we do Peter right here. And so Peter was an apostle. An apostle means a sent one. He was a sent one, according to Galatians, to the Jews. And yet, although he was sent to the Jews, it did not keep him from ministering to the Gentiles. So we see as early as in Acts 10 that it was Peter that went to Cornelius' house. Who Cornelius was of the Italian band. He was a Gentile. And he preached Christ to him. And he and his household received the Holy Ghost. So though he was an apostle to the Jews, it didn't keep him from ministering to the Gentiles. Uh, he was one of the original 12 apostles and so that means a lot to us as we're reading First Peter here because that gives an authority to his message. This is not third, fourth, fifth string information here. This is information that Peter got from the very lips of the Lord. Amen. He knew about what he was talking about. Kind of ironically, though, this Peter that we read of in the Gospels, this is the very one that when the Lord said, I'm going to, uh, three, you know, there's going to be a few days here and I'm going to be taken by the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm going to suffer horribly by them. They're going to put me on a tree. I'm going to die and I'm going to, he's telling them all this. This is the same Peter that spoke up and said, nope, wait a minute, Lord, that's not happening. Be it far from you was his words. Whenever Christ is talking about suffering and about dying, but now he's writing an epistle talking about suffering. And he sees the necessity of it now on the backside of these things. And he shares the model of Christ's suffering as a model for our own suffering. Again, he'll tell us later in verse number 5, I believe it is, of, of this same chapter of the glory that follows the suffering. Or if you will, that suffering will somewhere along the way give way to glory. Look whenever uh, the Lord spoke to him concerning his suffering. Matthew 16 and verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to shew unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes. And ultimately, I mean, the climax of suffering here for the Lord, and be killed. <laughs> yeah. And be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. That's bold. Saying... Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. He says, this suffering that's leading to glory, 
This is all the process. This is all the will of God. He says to to keep me from this or try to keep me from this, he says, is having a mind of savoring the things of men, he said, rather than God. And so what Jesus was doing, Jesus was challenging Peter's worldview. Why? Why? Because men want glory with the least amount of risk and suffering involved. But God's path to glory for us is lined with mile markers of mile marker one, suffering. Mile marker two, suffering. Mile marker suffering. So the message that Peter is sharing, this isn't, as I said from the onset, it's not just good in theory. It's good for him because it's, it's practical because he's lived this out in his own life. He's seen this lived out in Jesus' life culminating for the Lord ultimately in death, the death of the cross. But this was even played out in Peter's life even to a grander degree after the epistle was written. Because tradition tells us that Peter had to watch as his wife was crucified. And it says in tradition that he encouraged her with these words. Remember the Lord, dear. Remember the Lord. Now, I don't know what way that was stated or meant. I look at it in two different ways as I've been studying over the past several weeks. Maybe perhaps Peter was telling her to remember the Lord because she was at that point. I don't know if I want to suffer this much for the faith. Maybe she was ready to renounce everything and say, let me get off this cross. Maybe he was telling her to remember the Lord, encourage her to stay true to her change, to her joy and her suffering. Or perhaps, perhaps he was just wanting her to recall the Lord's own suffering. Remember the Lord. Remember Calvary. Remember the cross. What you're going through right now isn't anything that he hasn't went through. And remember that the Bible says in Hebrews, I believe it is, that he endured the cross for the joy, right? That was set before him. But when did that happen? After the suffering. After the suffering. Tradition even tells us that Peter was crucified himself. Upside down. He chose that because he didn't want to be crucified right side up as the Lord. He didn't feel like he was worthy enough to do so. So he met his own, his own time, even in the end of ultimate suffering. When we look at the places that this, this, this letter, this epistle had went, it went, it seems to be a letter that was circulated because he's writing to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so whenever you look at those individual cities, if you would get out an ode uh, or a New Testament map of the Bible days, you would see that Peter wrote to the northern part of Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey today. He wrote to a large area, large landmass. Whenever you consider those towns and cities, they equaled about the landmass of the state of California for comparison today. He was writing to all these people in California, just think about it, amen, uh, concerning what they need to do, concerning their suffering and their joy in the Lord. Amen. This, this area was surrounded with water. It had three different seas on three different sides. It was quite a landmass. It was like 1,000 miles from east to west, 350 miles north to south. And so he had a lot, a lot of ground that this letter was going to go. But since it was going to all these various areas, it was diverse land, diverse people, and diverse culture, but the same message. You hearing me? Diverse culture, diverse people, diverse languages, but the same message. Matter of fact, predominantly his audience was probably Gentile with a little spattering of Jews here and there because he writes to the strangers scattered throughout the area. And we'll we'll concentrate on this perhaps just a little bit later here tonight. But what made them strangers wasn't so much their race, but it was the fact that they were born again. It was the fact that they were Christians. It was the fact that they had been filled with the Holy Ghost and baptized in Jesus' name. It wasn't so much that this one was Jew or that one was Gentile. It was that they were newborn Christians. That's what made them strangers. Because see, as long as you go with the flow of the life of the world in which you live, you are more of a citizen of this world than you are the next world. But the moment you have a spiritual change in your life, You start living contrary to the world that you reside in. And you automatically become a stranger and a pilgrim here below. 
I'm feeling the Holy Ghost coming here. Hallelujah. And so in that mind frame, Peter is speaking to these people, these newfound Christians, these people that are staying true to the grace of God that he admonished them to stay true to. He is speaking to them as strangers that are scattered. They're in this city and that city here and abroad. He said, and you are strangers because you're walking through this land, but all the while your mind is on a land that is beyond the one that your feet is touching right now. And you're living though, you're living according to the standards and the culture of the land you're going to rather than the land you're living in. Hmm. I feel the Holy Ghost coming in here. Amen. And so here he is. He has a mixed audience. He has Jew and Gentile. He's talking to Christians. So whenever Christianity first began, it actually came up under the umbrella of Judaism. The Jews were under the Roman government. The Roman government had made allowances for Judaism to be practiced. And so whenever Christianity started to burgeon up under the umbrella of Judaism, Rome didn't have a problem with it because they were under the umbrella of Judaism. But see, there came a point in time that Christianity separated itself from Judaism because they had their differences. Mm -hmm. The Jews didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. The Christians knew that he was. And so they had their differences. And so whenever Christianity separated from Judaism and stood on its own identity of who they were, guess what? Rome didn't start to tolerate them anymore because they had separated themselves. And since that happened, Christians got a little apprehensive. They became a little bit afraid of what might happen to them because here was their dilemma. Imagine it as a newborn again Christian. Some of you think back to that day. They're in a situation. They're asking themselves, how can I... Respond to God, be faithful to God, and not disrespect my government or the world in which I live. Bingo was his name oh, right there, Brother Bob Gross. What I'm saying is there are some things in this life, values that we can support only because there's an overlap in the value between that world and this world. But where there's not an overlap, there's got to be a distinction. Hmm. there must be a distinction and so the christians are a little apprehensive they didn't know how they were going to do this and it's in that brother gross that they understood you know what we're going to have to suffer for the right response of staying true to the grace of god that we have received and so we we have people going into these areas of galatia and cappadocia there's some reasons why that could happen, perhaps because of this fear of persecution. But uh, there was also just kind of historical little tidbit for you. There was Claudius who was going out, and he's making different cities and towns in some of these areas. And all times when that would happen, they would ask for volunteers or they would force people into those areas to populate them and colonize them to have a representation of Rome in these new areas. So some of them may have been there as a result of that. But again, the main reason Peter is speaking to them as strangers is because they were not living, they were not living perhaps in their native lands, but more than that, they were not living in their spiritual native land. Their spiritual native land. They were strangers because of their new birth experience. Even the Bible says in Hebrews, speaking of the old patriarch Abraham, who only had a, a certain level of experience with God because it wasn't the dispensation of the church yet. There wasn't, there wasn't the new birth of Acts 2 that had taken place yet. The Bible, even when it speaks of Abraham, it said that he looked for a city. He looked for a city. He was on a journey looking for a city which had foundations. But who's what? Builder and maker. Wasn't another man. He wasn't looking for Nimrod's Babel. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. And he admitted, he admitted that he and those that were like him were what? Pilgrims and strangers at best on the earth. Peter even gives clarification to again these strangers that are scattered. He speaks of them again in 1 Peter 2.11. He says, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, look now, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. It's that last phrase that shines light on what type of strangers and pilgrims he's talking about. He's talking about those that are living a life that is different than that they once lived. You're a stranger and a pilgrim the way that you remain as such if you keep abstaining. 
from the flesh. That's not a, so much a natural thing as much as it is a spiritual thing. It has a two-edged sword there. Strangers are those who stand separate from their surroundings. It's just introduction tonight. Can't wait to get into this. this. They do not hold citizenship in the place where they reside. The disciples, even in Jesus' high priestly prayer of John 17, said these are in the world, but they are not of. It's exactly how the scripture says it. But they are not of the world. They reside here, but this is not their birthplace. Whew. You were born literally of your mommy, yeah. He said, but when you were born again, you were born of another world. Mm. Now listen, again, strangers will only cooperate and participate in the culture where they share an overlap of values. All right? Now listen to this. This blew my mind because this is, this is, just, this is just some denominal writer here. But listen to this. It could not be even more true. You want to talk about spirit, spirit of revelation that hit this person? Listen to this. Karen H. Jobs says this. She says, if statistics tell the true story, it would seem that most Christians today, even those who call themselves evangelicals, are in some important ways not very distinguishable from unbelievers. She says, we divorce at the same rate. We have the same addictions. We seek the same forms of entertainment. We wear the same fashions, and so on. She said, First Peter challenges Christians to re-examine our acceptance of society's norms and to be willing to suffer the alienation of being a visiting foreigner in our own culture whenever its values conflict with those of Christ. Oh, yeah. She went on and said this, We must be prepared to suffer the consequences of not sinning. Woo! Woo! We need to be prepared to suffer the consequences of not sinning. We know there's consequences to sinning, but there's suffering that comes with not sinning too because everybody's staring down their nose at you. You feel the pressure of the peers and of society. It's people feeling like you're some you know, weirdo because you're not conforming to your environment and your surroundings. Hey, I'm here to tell you, you're going to have to be willing to suffer not sinning. You're going to have to feel the heat of what it feels like to stand out, walk by faith, walk in accordance with a world that's not of this world. She went on and said, the lack of citizenship implied that such people did not enjoy all the rights and privileges of citizens. You hear me? A lack of citizenship implied that such people did not enjoy all the rights and privileges of citizens. In other words, if I'm not a citizen of this world, then there's this things, things that this world does that I don't have a right or a privilege to because I'm not a citizen of this world. Moreover, as foreigners... They were not necessarily expected to hold the values and practices and practice the customs of their host culture. Why? Because they're a stranger. Hmm? You go into another culture. We have people come over here in our culture. They might, I don't expect them to hold every value and practice of my culture because they're of another culture. Yet somehow we tend to believe because we have a culture of another land that we got to participate with everything that goes on in this culture. But do we not, re do we not realize sometimes by doing such then we are forsaking and even maybe prohibiting the transition from this culture to the next. Mm -hmm. Verse number two. He starts out the verse. He says, and this is, this is a continuing sentence from verse number one. Matter of fact, Peter is going to do a lot like the apostle Paul done. Next week, we're going to start in like verse three. Like you go to verse three to like the verse 12, and it's one continuous sentence in the Greek. 
You want to talk about run-ons. They just love those things. Makes it hard to follow those sometimes. But he says, elect. Now listen, whenever he makes mention of the elect, he's, he's not talking about certain individuals that God has handpicked to be saved and no others are going to be saved. Because that's the way society does it. God has an elect. There's certain ones he has in mind he's going to save. Those are going to be it. Everybody else be on them. The elect is the church. The elect is the church. The elect is what the book of Ephesians calls and describes the us in him. The us in him. Ephesians 1 and verse 4 says, according as he hath chosen us in him. What's that referring to? That refers to the church. You'll look at Ephesians. It's all written concerning the church. The us in him is the church before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In other words, before the foundation of the world, God had something in mind, an institution, an organism called the church. He had, he had qualifications and requirements in mind for that church. She would be separate and sanctified and holy as he was holy. Before the world even began. And so whenever he's speaking of the elect here, he's speaking of the church. He's not speaking of, well, uh, that one, that one, that one, already picked from the foundation of the world. They're mine. No one else. We're just going to live life. No, 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 no. The elect that God has in mind is the church. Here's the thing. We have the choice to be a part of or not a part of the church. We have choice to be a part of or not a part of God's elect. You have a choice in the matter. We all have a choice in the matter. And so, yes, the church has a definition. But anyone can be a part of the church as long as they subscribe to what is defined as the church. He's not looking at land and saying you can't be a part of the church. If to put it in the most simplest of terms, and this is really a rude probably example, a crude example. If you're going to be a part of some organization or society most of them have certain regulations even if you're going to have a homeowner society or neighborhood type thing there's certain regulations you can choose to be a part of it you can live there and choose to be a part of it. you'll keep your grass certain height and your trash cans got to be built in whatever there's certain things or and you choose not to but choosing to be a part of it then there's certain perks and privileges that come along with that so you have a choice to make is keeping my grass at a certain height and keeping my containers shut in worth the perks that I get for being a part of it. God has a church. He has prescribed, if you will, regulations. He has prescribed ideas of what he sees his church to be. It's up to us. We have a choice. You got to decide whether or not what you get in return, and let me tell you, it's a whole lot better than what you're giving up. What you get in return is better than not being a part of it at all. Amen. our church yet when you become a part of this church it will make you a stranger to the world see whenever he called them elect brother Malone that spoke to their vertical relationship the relationship with God but whenever he called them strangers that spoke to the horizontal relationship with man because now they are a stranger to mankind because they become a part of the church. He said, elect to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and to obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's amazing that we see in verse number two all three operations. It hadn't been that long ago. We did our Daughters One series for several weeks that we see all operations or functions or relationships of God involved with mankind. And it is. The story of redemption has involved all the functions of God. God being a father to us, by virtue of creation and our new birth, God being son to us by God coming down in a body of flesh, supplying blood and life for the remission of our sins, and God being spirit to us, which sanctifies us and sets us apart in our day to day and whenever rapture takes place. And so all these operations and functions are involved with mankind. To bear, if you will, on the birth of God's church, of salvation. The Father foreknew, the Scripture says, the Spirit sanctified, and the Son cleansed. Let me, again, we've done our God wonder series. I don't have time to run five weeks by you here in a moment. But the idea 
The man-made idea of the Trinity or three persons didn't even exist when 1 Peter was written. 1 Peter's written somewhere around 64, 63, 62 A.D. The man-made idea of Trinity didn't even come to be 325, 381 A.D. Terminology didn't even exist. So I guarantee you Peter isn't talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Three persons that are co-equal, co-eternal, co-substantial. No! He's talking about one God that through relationship of Father in our new birth didn't only give birth to Jesus but gave birth to us in the Spirit. Talk to us about a son that came down. God came down in flesh, had blood in order for the remission and remitting of sins of humanity. A spirit that whenever Christ went away, he said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And on the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. The earnest of their inheritance, as the apostle said. Amen. And so, creation as our father, creation and our new uh, father and our new birth experience. Did he, fore, did he foreknow? Did he foreknow the elect? He foreknew the church. He foreknew what he designed the church to be, what he wanted the church to be. He foreknew. He foreknew what he would classify as the redeemed. Better than that, he foreknew the redeemer. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world so herein is the truth the Bible says through the elect through sanctification of the spirit unto obedience did you catch that unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ herein is the truth we are sanctified or we are made holy and separate from the world by the Spirit. By the Spirit. This happens, Sister Margaret, on two levels. Number one, we are sanctified and made holy and separate by the Spirit at our initial infilling of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Number one level. Secondly, we are sanctified and made separate and holy by the Spirit as we daily continue to be led by the Spirit that we have received. Sanctification is a process. Sanctification initially happens at Holy Ghost and filling. But there's sanctification happening every day by the choices you make of whether being led by the Spirit or rejecting the Spirit that you have received. Ultimate sanctification will take place on the day of rapture when this mortal will put on immortality. And your destiny is chosen. Ultimate separation. Ultimate sanctification. Amen. Oh, Holy Ghost. I feel the Holy Ghost. So in one sense, as the Bible relates to us, God sanctifies us. But in another sense, as Scripture even relays, we need to sanctify ourselves. Us and God are together in this work of sanctification. The Bible says in Romans 15 and verse 16, Paul says that I should be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles may, might be acceptable. And here he is being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. He's harmonizing with Peter. 2 Corinthians 7.1 states these words. Having therefore these promises... You can look at 2 Corinthians 6 in the last verse to see what promises he's referring to. He told them that, that, that you know, light does not comprehend the darkness and you can't be a son of Belial and the, and the son of God and you can't, you can't have these two extremes. He says, and if you, if you will not try to play both of these of trying to be worldly and being churchy, he says, I'll receive you and I'll be a father to you. It's those promises that he states in verse 1. He's talking about having therefore those promises. He said, dearly beloved, let us, hear me? Let us cleanse ourselves. Woo-hoo. What? Ourselves? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness or separation, sanctification, 
in the fear of God. So the spirit is at work at sanctification, but us being led by that spirit is our part in that sanctification. Mm -hmm. Look what he says. Through sanctification of the spirit unto, I'll get us out of here. I don't have much longer. All right, everybody okay? You are, you're doing great. Through sanctification of the spirit unto. That word unto there means point entered and purpose. In other words, the elect, the church's entry point, look at it, through sanctification of the spirit unto, the church's entry point was obeying, obedience, obeying Christ, obeying Christ initially. But from that day forward then, its purpose is to continue, see, unto is point of entry and purpose. Through sanctification, the elect of the church was unto, or if you will, their entry point was obedience and their purpose was to continue in obedience. What this alludes to, and you can turn there if you will, Exodus 24, or cheat and look at the screen. Right, Rosak, cheat and look at the screen. Exodus 24 and verse 3, this, this concept of unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood. In Exodus 24 and verse number 3, I'll start. This is really alluding to the old Mosaic covenant of the Old Testament, what Peter is speaking right here. Verse number three states these words. It's before you. I'm using the old Bible here, so give me a moment. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. Did you just hear what I said? He's telling them the judgments. He's telling them all these things, and he says, whatever God says, we will do. That's obedience. Whatever God says. Whatever God says. We'll do it. I'm whispering for effect. <laughs> Whatever God says, we'll do it. And Moses wrote, now look at it. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood from these offerings and put it in basins. And half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people. So he took everything that had been written concerning the covenant, the things that God had asked that they said they would do. He took that covenant. He read it again in the audience of the people. And they said all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. So here's, this is what Peter is alluding to here in the New Testament. They were sanctified through the spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood. In the Old Testament is the sprinkling of the blood of some animal. In the New Testament, it's the sprinkling of the blood or the covering of the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So what we have here in Exodus 24 is a newly formed nation, a newly formed nation, the children of Israel. They are pledging their obedience first. And then they are sprinkled with the blood of sacrifice and a covenant's made between them and God. Everything that the Lord said, we will do. That's their response. If I say it like this, that's even their obedience. Everything that the Lord said, we will do. More important, that's their obedience to God's words. We still have God's words. We still have God's words. Amen. And so what followed their obedience then was the sprinkling of the blood. Brother McGee, brother McGee, no, 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 listen to me. I know we talk about grace through faith, right? It's not of works lest any man should boast, but it's grace through faith that you say, right? God extends grace to you because of his grace then through faith. Remember what James said, and we're not talking about James Malone. Remember what James said. 
faith without works is dead. So there is no living faith that has no works. You hearing me? It can't even be called faith. It can be called, I guess, dead faith, inactive faith, not prospering faith, no pulse faith, taking a dirt nap faith. The only way that faith is faith is this accompanied by works. And the only way there's works is if you're obedient. Mm-hmm. We read through all the great faith chapter of Hebrews 11, right? How, how Noah, by faith, prepared an ark. Hmm? By faith, he, what? By faith, he prepared, he did something. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Because faith is always accompanied with works. And why did he prepare an ark? Because God said to do it. What was he doing then by preparing it? He was obeying. Yes, yes, yes. So yes, obedience is a grand play leading up to the sprinkling of the blood of us. Because whenever I repented, I was obeying. When I was baptized in Jesus' name, I was obeying. Whenever I was filled with the Holy Ghost, I was obeying. Oh, Brother McGee, that's works. No, it's not. You've heard me say it before. Because if there was never a Calvary, your repentance wouldn't work. Your baptism wouldn't work. And there'd be no Holy Ghost to receive. So it is still all leaning upon the work of Calvary. But we need sanctification of His Spirit and our involvement. I'll end with this. Stand with me. You'll feel comfortable doing that standing. He ends basically with this, and you see this all throughout. Haven't you read all the epistles before? And sometimes it says, you know, uh, you know, grace, grace and peace be with you. Or you get over, you get over in like first and second Timothy, uh, what's known as the pastoral epistles, and it says, Grace, peace, and mercy be with you. The reason why that happens is because God knew that the pastors needed mercy along with their grace and peace. <laughs> But what it comes down to, it's just a customary greeting. Grace, the, the, the Greek word for grace was the customary greeting for the Greeks. Shalom, peace, was the customary greeting for the Jews. And he knew he had both Jews and Gentiles, so he used both greetings to be able to refer to both. And so that's really what that all boils down to through all the epistles until those pastors need some mercy <laughs> in First and Second Timothy. So that's the overarching bird's eye view of 1 Peter, of what we're about ready to get into. And I'm excited about getting into it. I want to see how I can live life joyfully along with suffering that's coming as a result of my faith. And I want to know how I can stand firm, Brother Terry, in spite of it all. And my reward still be heaven someday. And not throw in the towel and give up and say, this is too hard. This is so difficult. Oh, God, let's get a life and just be Christians. Let's just be Christians. If you bow your heads tonight, amen, I'll dismiss in prayer. Again, so good to see so many of you. Amen. We're looking forward to seeing you again this coming weekend. Father, I come before you tonight. God, I'm thankful. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.